This is part two of my interview with Bruce Mafio. Todd Kaminsky, did you have interactions with him? You know, here's someone who was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, very heavily involved in, in, the, in the drug case. Was he also involved in the, in the murder case? No. No, I mean, I, I know Todd. Um, I, I wasn't, as I said, involved in the drug case. Um, I'm certainly familiar with his involvement derivatively because of the uh, transcript of the... We well, didn't prosecute the sure. trial, but he had conducted the investigation. But I didn't have any direct dealings with, I guess, State Senator Kaminsky now. Yeah. Um... What I found interesting, and maybe it doesn't matter, you know, there's both Khalil and Muhammad Stewart or Tef, they talk about this incident that transpires at the Apollo Theater. Mm -hmm. um, they both tell completely different stories about what, what went on. Um, does a jury see that? Do they not see that? Do you recall that? I certainly recall the incident. Um, I don't recall as I sit here now the material differences. My recollection is Tef came in separately from... Well, he Tef, Tef says that him and Jimmy were together. They walked into the, the, the um, Apollo Theater. Right. They walked upstairs. He grabbed the bottle. Right. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Khalil, and, and he says after that this all happens, Khalil meets them downstairs. Khalil's story is, I walked in with Jimmy, I witnessed this, I ushered Jimmy out of a back door. Um, so Stewart does not put Khalil in the, in the room at the Apollo Theater. They're, they're different stories. Yeah, and I, I mean... I didn't know if that meant anything or if that, that was something that the jury picked up on or something that you remember. No, because I think the concentration on the... Um, I mean, my focus on that was... Abdullah, what I do recall is Abdullah picks up the narrative after the incident in the Apollo and then claims he gets into a car with Jim. They go chasing uh, some fellows over to East Harlem and then there's a shooting that occurs. Um, but I, I don't recall the specific variances about Stewart. I mean, that particular shooting was you know, really sort of background more than anything else. Sure. I mean, you know, what I, I don't think the, the focus of the trial was to deny some feud between warring rap factions. I mean, that really, you know, if anything, was, in my view, somewhat of a distraction. Um, the real focus, or at least what I tried to keep the focus on, was the, the actual murder. Um, Mohammed Stewart... Tell me your interpretation of him versus, you know, you told me what you felt about Khalil Abdul. How about Muhammad Stewart and his testimony and, and how you felt about that? Well, I think in the first trial, and this goes back to something we said before, the differences between the first trial, I think that Stewart in the first trial uh, came across as a violent thug um, and a remorseless one at that. Um, and I think that this, the first trial was the first trial that he'd ever been cross-examined on um, and I, I think he came across as precisely that in his testimony um, 
I mean, he was somewhat soft-spoken, but when you ran through his sheet, it was a pretty uh, aggressive sheet, and there was actually some a fairly significant moment in the first trial where we confronted him, I confronted him about uh, a murder uh, that he denied having uh, been involved in, but which he was caught flat-footed on the first time, and I think that you know that was one of those moments in the courtroom where it may not show up in the transcript, but it was fairly dramatic. Uh, I mean, I think when I pressed him on it, he says, well, I, I can't recall. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, I think how Stewart, my guess is that how Stewart came across in the first trial was was uh, probably, probably the most significant event, at least from my perspective, uh, in the case. I mean, I think, again, I, I didn't speak to the jurors. Um, I don't know what they were thinking, but being in the courtroom and trying to sort of look at things objectively, I think Stewart hurt the government in the first trial. Um, it was just a, too much violence uh, in one person for, I think, a lot of people to stomach, and I suspect that that had. I mean, Abdullah, by contrast, you know, it had a couple of pistol whippings and uh, robberies but and, and a lot of crimes for sure but Stewart was a violent guy um, and even though he had a somewhat soft spoken way about him the, the record of the violence and the, the graphic testimony that I was able to elicit about the violence I think put the government back on its heels in the first trial. I think in the second trial, um, the same points got made, but you know, at this point, Stewart had my number. So while he had to give the answers, um, he was less combative than he was in the first trial. The first trial, he was very combative with me, and that was something that most cross-examiners like because the juries, you know, Jury trials are very intimate settings, even though it's a formal courtroom, and uh, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't reflect it in the transcript as far as body movements, silences, pauses, looks um, that permeates with the jury doesn't necessarily find itself reflected in the trial transcript. So, I mean, I could be wrong. Um, like I said, I've never sat as a juror, and I certainly wasn't a juror in this case, so who knows, they probably, if you ask one of them, they'd say, well, no, we didn't think that at all, but yeah. I, that was my perception. Um, so the third person, as you said before, I think, you know, Abdullah and Stewart are periphery, almost a distraction maybe to the main, now you get to Brian McLeod. What, what were your thoughts about him? What were your thoughts about his testimony um, and your interaction with you know, I, I think with McLeod, I mean, McLeod was, I think McLeod perceives himself as being a, a, a more intelligent fellow than perhaps is necessarily the case, but he was articulate for sure. Um, you know, McLeod's testimony, depending on what portion of it you went to, either supported, supported Jim or, or, or sunk him. I mean, McLeod's testimony on direct and in the second trial redirect uh, was that Jim Roseman had never told him to murder uh, Lowell Fletcher. 
and that this was, you know, by implication, a beating that went south, and there was some significant um, other evidence that corroborated that. Um, the fact that the amount of money that had been asked for what was presented as a shooting got S jacked up after the, the murder had occurred. Um, there were limitations on how far I could play that uh, or emphasize that in the uh, in both trials. Um, but I think that, and that's one of the main issues on Jim's appeal right now as to whether or not I was essentially uh, handcuffed from exploring uh, McLeod's account that Jim had never ordered him or requested a murder. Why? Why? How were you handcuffed? Well, because there were limitations placed on how far I could, I could cross-examine on that issue because of prior statements that, you know, had been made before my representation. It was a legal ruling. It's reflected in the transcript, um, but uh, you know, it was an issue that was vigorously disputed, debated, argued. I guess is a better word in the first trial. Um, I had more leeway in the first trial. I opened very hard on this issue. Um, the government sort of woke up towards the end of the trial and asked for a ruling from Judge McMahon limiting what I could say uh, in summation on this issue and what I could do in cross-examination on this issue. That's a issue that's up on appeal because that ruling was continued in the second trial. But I definitely op was able to open harder on that issue in the first trial and get further along, farther along with McLeod in cross-examination in the first trial uh, on that issue than I was on the second where at that point, you know, the government, you know, Judge McMahon made clear that the ruling she had made in the first trial was going to operate in the second trial. But, I mean, I think for McLeod that was, that's the core issue. I mean, the reality is uh, his testimony on direct and redirect in both trials was that Jim Roseman had never told him or instructed him or requested him to murder Lowell, Lowell Fletcher. Um, you know, I think there was, the, there was a point made or a statement, right? The testimony of, you know, Jimmy tells him you know, bring him to me. I'm going to hit him so hard and so fast, or something to that effect, right? Right. Which could, on the surface, mean I just want to punch the guy. You know, I want to beat him up. I think the government sort of was able to twist it that this was language of that that wasn't that. This was language that he was going to kill this guy, right? Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, it was somewhat of an artificial argument by the government standpoint. I mean, there, uh, I. I the notion that Jim Roseman is talking in code. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it's possible, but I never heard Jim talking code. And there were plenty of other statements attributed to Jim during the course of the trial that were clearly not in code. Um, so I think, you know, that's an argument they had to make because, you know, otherwise they're eating into their own theory of the case. The government's theory of the case is that it was a a straight-up murder for hire from Jump Street, and McLeod didn't deliver uh, that entirely to the government. Um, and in fact, there is 
I recall testimony that well after he entered into his cooperation agreement, um, McLeod, uh, where he began by saying that Jim had never uh, asked him to murder it, and then ultimately started edging closer to the government line, and then months into his cooperation, weeks before the first trial, um, went back to his original statement. Jim had never done that, and at that point the government broke off the session, called his lawyer, and I think the clear implication is that, or suggestion, at least the suggestion I made, is that, you know, McLeod was told, you know, get with the program or (laughs) get yourself adjusted to life without parole. Um, Two things that said, you know, I, I, I read last night, so it's really fresh in my memory, his 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 testimony it's it's very interesting to me it starts out you know that it's going to be him and these two him and another guy right and and that they're going to do this and then all of a sudden the day of or the day before all of a sudden there's three other people that have now been brought into this to this caper basically Mm -hmm. there's just something very odd about it I didn't, I, what, I, didn't, I didn't sort of understand it. What, what was your interpretation of it? Well, it was, it remains unclear, even this far into the history, what Tory was doing there. I mean, the government argued he was a backup shooter, but, I mean, other than the fact that he just rolled up on the scene, uh, it's not clear that there's any basis for this. I mean, McLeod basically presents it the way you did, which is that he expected... Uh, it was he and the other fellow and he shows up and you know all of a sudden you know Tory's on the scene and and I think his testimony is at that point the penny dropped and he realized this wasn't a beating this was going to be a murder but I mean it it was all very unclear as to what was going on I mean Tory didn't fire any shots the only shots that were fired were by Grant with a 22 while the guy was running um, I mean, obviously, he was a better shot than this Lowell Fletcher would have liked. Um, you know, there's an argument to be made, although I didn't make it at the trial, that, you know, Lowell Fletcher may have exsanguinated or bled out because he ran for a significant distance before he dropped. Uh, I'm not suggesting that he killed himself. He was shot. But um, the government's theory on this was that uh, this, the, the, this was the difficult part about the government's case. I mean, McLeod is the sort of central witness on the murder. So if anybody's going to know it's a murder, you would think it's McLeod, who is not a violent guy uh, by, at least according to his rap sheet. I mean, he didn't have any uh, assault uh, history in his criminal history. Um, so he shows up, Grant shows up. Grant's not a violent guy by nature. He's a big guy for sure um, you know had all the indicia of a beating um, until Grant goes ahead and goes off the rails fires I think six shots and hits him with if not six close to six shots which has to place him in the marksman range for street criminals um, it's, it's unclear my personal view which is irrelevant is that it was 
you know, it was a, a beating or an assault that went off the rails and that everyone was really surprised about it after the fact, including the shooter, who then, I believe, McLeod testified, asked for an increase in the amount of money because it was supposed to be a beating, but now I killed the guy, so I'm due, you got to give me some extra money, I mean, which is like a weird way to negotiate a, a murder for hire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. Um, Derek Grant, the shooter, he pleads out. Where, where, where is he in all this process that he did They all pled out except for Tory and Jim before the first trial. Um, they took fairly steep plea offers. Grant's now trying to get his, well, he tried to get his plea back. It was turned down. He's now, I think that was sustained, affirmed on appeal recently. And uh, now he's filed uh, what they call a 2255, a, a proceeding to, uh, you know, go after his lawyer for ineffective assistance um, so I mean they were all out the only people who went to trial the first time were Tory and Jim and Tory as I said was charged only in the drug part of the case he had nothing to do with uh, I mean, well, he, he had a cam he was also charged in the murder but it was a really sort of peripheral role he shows up and the other thing I wanted to ask you about that I that I just find fascinating is McLeod testifies, I think they're outside the entrance to Central Park or something when he first gets out of jail, and Jimmy says to him, you know, I'm getting watched by the DEA, I'm getting watched by the U.S. Attorney, I'm getting watched by anyone that can watch me. Hey, why don't we just, you know, plan a, a murder here? It, it, it just sounds, it just, I don't know, it just sounds so odd to me that, you know, someone in Jimmy's position where he was, um, and is being knows he's under surveillance is now going to plan this this murder. Under, under well, I look. You're right. Um, just hold on one second before you answer. I'm sorry, just think about your answer. I mean, look, Jim is probably the better person to answer that question than I am. Uh, all I do know is that based on the evidence that I saw, there was substantial evidence to argue that this was at worst intended to be a beating or, or a shooting, not a homicide. Um, I don't think, you know, you can't get around the fact the guy was killed, but the, if this were a murder, McLeod is the last guy you'd go to. I mean, just because he's not a gangbanger. I mean, he's basically a low-level drug dealer, you know, with a fast line of talk. I mean, he's not the guy I would go to if I wanted to take somebody out. Not that I would ever do that. Um, the testimony of, of John Heights and the, uh, the cell phone tracking. What did you think of it? Was it convincing? It was a mess the first time. Yeah. I mean, the government just got tripped up in its shoelaces with it. It became like, you know, a complete distraction. It was supposed to be the uh, resounding finale, and it turned into a lot of gibberish. 
um, they shortened it up significantly the second time. Um, but the first time, it was just, it was, uh, even the prosecutors, I think, would agree that it was, it was not the knockout punch that they were holding. You know, and the cell phone testimony, the cell site testimony went so far. I mean, of all the meetings that McLeod claimed to have had with Jim, some of them were backed up by cell site testimony and others were not. So it was half full or half empty, depending on how you uh, you looked at it. But the way it was handled the first time, they just they heaped it out. It was drawn out. It was boring. The jury was falling asleep. It was not the resounding finale I think the government had been uh, hoping for. Second trial, they they cut it sh- much shorter. And when they have that stuff, they don't have the actual text interactions, meaning you, I think you pointed out in court, it can say, okay, well, this person called that person, but if it was three seconds, that means the person didn't pick up the phone. Well, right. I think Hines in the second trial tried to, they elicited from him that there were these gobs of text messages or phone calls between Stewart and Jim. And, And I think I elicited in the testimony that of all these dozens if not hundreds of of calls most of them were one minute which rounds out to uh, zero seconds right so I mean what it reflected to me was that Stewart was basically a hanger on trying to reach Jim and failed to do that more often than not Um, did it matter to the jury that Jimmy and the cell phone testimony was in Miami and not even in I don't know. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> Apparently not in the second trial. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, it was an inconsistent. I mean, McLeod testified. I think McLeod testified that Jim was well, certainly Abdullah testified. I don't recall now whether uh, McLeod also testified he, that Jim was out of the country and Abdullah because there was a big back and forth about he claimed to have had a meeting with Jim the week later I was going to ask you that yeah so there's there's, Khalil Abdullah says that they met at this Mobay restaurant in Harlem right but the phone told the the, the register registers that he's in Miami right right I mean I think we were able to make more mileage out of it the first time the first trial and the second, but I, I recall that generally. I remember Mobe for sure. Um, if the the main witness, which you would you would say is is McLeod, never states that Jimmy asked him to to, to kill the guy, how how does he how is he found guilty of murder for hire? I know this is your opinion. You can't get into the mind of a jury. So. Well, the government argued that it was uh, basically ended up arguing circumstantially that unbeknownst to McLeod, the murder plot had been hatched and that even though there's no testimony to this effect, that Tory was on the scene uh, at Jim's request or behest uh, to make sure that the the murder went clean. That's just simply argument. Um, McLeod basically testifies, as I think we talked about earlier, that he uh, he arrives at the scene and he's surprised to see Tori and then all of a sudden you know, the light bulb goes off in his head that this is going to be more than a beating, but this is all 
internal speculation by McLeod. I mean, the government argued circumstantially that it was a murder because the guy was killed, Tory was there, bad blood. But, you know, it's a difficult argument to sort of string together when your main witness doesn't really put a period on and say, yes, I knew it was going to be a murder, and I agreed to uh, participate in it knowing it was going to be a murder. Um, what do you think the jury saw to, to convict him? Look, I've tried a lot of murder cases over 37 years um, on both sides of the courtroom. Um, I think anybody who's tried murder cases will tell you that in a weird way it reverses the presumption of innocence uh, because while jurors may be ready to acquit on a, on a case where there's not a dead body, um, where there's a dead body, I think jurors sort of think twice. They want to make sure they get it right because uh, there is a dead body there. So murder cases are have a weird sort of emotional crosswind going on in them that exists independent of the evidence and you have to sort of take it into account. I mean, the guy Fletcher, whatever, I think I summed up on this, whatever else he may have been in his life and it seems like he had a somewhat checkered life. Um, you know, you find a guy dead in the Bronx, bled out, uh, you know, with a nurse, off-duty nurse trying to resuscitate you. That's got an emotional pull to it uh, for any jury. So, you know, the drug testimony didn't help because there was enough of it around that I think it dirtied Jim up. Um, you know, the whole hip-hop war piece, which I think was just overdrawn, but there was a lot of it. Um, it certainly suggested that there was a high comfort level with violence, although... It seemed odd, you know, for example, they call, I think, like a sergeant or something who responds to the shooting at Hot 97, and you're sort of reading this and going, what, the, what does this have to do... Well, the government, I mean, this again was an issue that we ended up litigating before trial and trying to move to exclude it. The government's argument, and there was plenty more of testimony the government wanted to get in. Um, their argument, which Judge McMahon bought into to a certain extent, although she limited some of the testimony, was that this was all part of backdrop or context, that there was this this feud going on and, you know, this was the culmination of that feud. I mean, none of, nobody got hurt in any of these other shootings. I mean, that's the... I guess somebody to get... Some bystander. Yeah, like some bystander. Right, and that yeah. poor sod, whoever I mean, he is... they shoot up the glass, they bring that person to go, well, they right. shot up the glass, and you're, right. you're just... Right, but what you end up doing is you've got a lot of testimony about guns and guns being fired. So, you know, the reason the government wants to introduce it is to sort of introduce or jack up the the violent aspect, even though nobody got shot. And quite frankly, there was no... I mean, they, they... You know, I think there was some testimony that somebody's 
daughter or granddaughter or infant child was in one of the houses that got shot up. But I mean, the reality is nobody, nobody got hurt. So, but it muddied up the waters for sure. And the drug testimony, even though it was somewhat limited in the first trial, in uh, the second trial, um, you know, there was enough drug testimony around. So you got lots of drugs, lots of shootings, and a guy bled out on the streets of the Bronx. It's not a pretty picture. So you got to sort of work your way back from a pretty dark starting point. Um. Brian James testifies in the drug trial. He testifies in the first murder trial, but then he he doesn't testify in the second. Wow. Yeah, because he was he was he was irrelevant. I mean, he also there was a whole sort of uh, MacGuffin issue with James about whether he. Uh, I think there was I forget now, but there was some issue about whether or not his testimony conflicted with McLeod's as to the payment. Um, he thought he saw McLeod deliver the payment. Not McLeod. He saw Abdullah deliver the drugs, the money for McLeod. Abdullah denied that, so there was this headbutting between the two of them. He really had very little to add. I think the only piece he had to add in the first trial was some comment or statement he attributed to Tory after the shooting. Um, so I think they made the intelligent decision that they didn't need him for the second trial. All he did was muddy up the water on uh, a small piece of Abdullah's testimony. So they, and that goes to the problems with the retrial. I mean, they're, they're smart people. I mean, they may not be the most experienced trial lawyers in the world, but they're smart people, and they get it, and they'll go back to the drawing boards and dissect and trisect the testimony and figure out a better mousetrap for the second one. That's just part of the problems with doing a retrial.